hundred years before, the groves and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people, which I command thee this day to do them. The texts that I like us to consider, especially this morning, verses 7 and 8, the Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were unchosen. I trust that if that's the case, if we're frozen, then we're not his chosen. Because the Lord says that we're to love one another. God's people have the fruit of love and not the fruit of hardness and coldness. We should be called, I hope, rather the surprisingly selected or the ecstatically selected or the gratefully elected. Israel's election is an illustration of the church's selection. We read together from John 15. Notice it says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And when we want to emphasize whether whether something negative, we say not in a loud voice, or we underline it if we're writing it. The Hebrews would put it at the forefront of the sentence. And so, or in Greek as well, the New Testament here, not in this sentence, you have not chosen me. Now, in our English, it's the third word. You have not, you have, you have not chosen me. In the Greek sentence, it's at the very front of the sentence. Not, you have chosen me, in other words. And that doesn't make good English, but it makes good theology. Jesus is saying, you can hands down realize that I didn't choose you because you chose me. You believe because I chose you. You chose me because I chose you. Just like John would say later, we love him because he first loved us. Not reversed. He didn't love us because we loved him. We didn't love him. We loved our sins. Like Adam and Eve, they they hid from God in that vast garden. And they were hoping that he wouldn't find them. They wanted to live apart from God because of their sin. Matter of fact, Jesus also in this sentence, you've not chosen me, but I have chosen you. When he says, I have chosen you, he doesn't just use a verb, I have chosen. That's just a verb to us, I have chosen you. First person verb, chosen. The word, I have chosen you, the I is there as not just a symbol of the first person verb, but it's a pronoun that's added to the first person verb. So literally, I myself have chosen you. He's again emphasizing that it was not us, it was him that was in Paul. And so do we. So I'd like us to look at simply the thought, loved and chosen. Loved and chosen. It's interesting, it, it doesn't say chosen and loved. Although both are true, loved and chosen, but the Lord tells us what comes first in Deuteronomy. Notice he says, loved the world. There it says he so loved the world. You notice the, the difference. He's saying the demonstration of his love 
was so great in that, what? So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave up his son. If there was any other way for God to save sinners than giving up his son, do you think he would have not chosen that other way? Just think about it. People have said, why didn't God just save us? Why did Jesus have to die? It's theology, it's truth that sin has to be paid for in the life of the sinner, by the life of the sinner or the life of the sin bearer. The Bible teaches that God can choose a sin bearer, in other words, a substitute in my place. But that substitute, we know from Scripture, has to be God and has to be man. Has to be God because he's, he's enduring billions and billions of sin. Because he has to reconcile God. He has to be man because it was man who fell. And he has to reconcile man to God. It's just an amazing discovery. It's an amazing, uh, what do we call it, when someone, when someone discovers something new. It's just a genius of God. If man would ever be presented with questions, how could God save sinners? We'd have come up with everything about our works or about God's just, uh, capricious desire. But the only way to save sinners was that God's Son would have to come and live for us and die for us. That's why Jesus was not just created as a human being, an adult like Adam. Adam and Eve were created adults. They don't know what it was like to be a baby, to be a toddler, to be a child, even to be a teenager. Well, maybe they were teenagers if we would, whatever stage of life they were. So I imagine it, it must have been a little bit difficult to bring up a baby if you, were, if you never knew what it was like to be a child, to raise Cain, so to speak. That's exactly what happens to all of us when we raise children. We raise Cain, don't we? We're all conceived and born in sin. And oh, how Cain, the very first person born into the world, conceived and born in sin, was the seed of the serpent and not the seed of the woman. He so loved the world that he gave up, in other words, his only son. He had to turn his back on Jesus when he unleashed the fury that we deserved upon Jesus. You know, in the Old Testament, we read that people were impaled to trees after they died. They didn't impale people to trees while they were alive. Joshua slew the kings and then hung them up on trees so that the hanging of these kings would would be a motivation for the Israelites that no king can stand in the way who rebels against God. And people were slain and then nailed to trees. 
But Jesus chose a time when the Medo-Persians and then the Romans perfected the kind of torture and death of living, conscious human beings being impaled. Man can invent such cruel ways of torture and death. What a cruel way to torture and kill someone and execute someone. And the Romans did it, no doubt, to say, all of you out there see this, this is going to happen to you if you rebel against the regime. And we know that it would be very wicked to think about Mr. Putin and what he has done recently to put Navalny to death. And what he's saying is any of you that rebel against this regime, you can expect this to happen. Wickedness, murder. The Romans no doubt said that if you rebel unrighteously, but of course they were as proud as Putin. However you rebel against Rome and Caesar, this is your fate. But Jesus did nothing wrong. He had no sin. He did no sin. It was we who sinned. We were represented by the two on either side of Jesus, the two thieves that had sinned, deserved God's wrath. But we were also represented by the middle cross. Jesus became the second Adam. We deserved what these two men received. Crucifixion, like the one man. Both of them were railing at Jesus. That's how we can conclude that at first both of them were railing. Help us if you're the Son of God. to Come down from the cross. But all of a sudden, one man just had his heart turned and he, and he was rebuked in his heart and God turned his heart to pray First, to, to, to uh, rebuke his comrade. We deserve what we've, what we've been given, what we are receiving. But this man has done nothing amiss. Amen. Why is it that one, at one moment, and with perhaps within minutes, he's, he's going from railing on Christ to pleading with Christ, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom a man that could not be recognized as a human with a crown of thorns upon his scalp. You could, you, could, you could count his bones. He was naked on that cross. And yet, unlike Pilate, who said, Art thou a king? The thief said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You are a king. By faith, the Lord had given that man faith who Jesus really was. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, says Ephesians 5.25. And marriage is a symbol of the gospel and love motivates engagement in marriage. And it's love that motivated God to engage his son, to die for a people. It's lovingly. Secondly, we're loved and chosen discriminately. He says in verse 6, above all the people that are upon the earth. 
God chose Israel. He had many other nations that he could have chosen that were just as wicked, perhaps even less wicked than Israel. He could have chosen the Egyptians, the Philistines, the nations that existed at that time. He could have chosen where Job lived, in the land of Uz, the Uzites. Job lived in the days of Abraham. So did Melchizedek. He could have chosen any of the nations that were existing at that time. He could have chosen Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into a a holy nation. God, in other words, discriminated in his love and and choosing. Now, discrimination is a dirty word today. But the word simply means to make a distinction, not on unfair ground, to make an ex- a distinction. Do you know every one of us discriminates? When you chose a babysitter, did you not discriminate from one to other than the other? How about the choice of a tenant if you're renting? You discriminate. How about the choice of a vehicle when you buy it? You discriminate one from another. How about the choice of a dinner? How about the choice of a spouse? We discriminate. And discrimination is a wise thing in our choices. In other words, God exercised discriminant love. He he commands us to exercise discriminate love. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We discriminate. We we say God is our God, not Baal, not Buddha, not materialism, not immorality. We discriminate when we believe in the Lord. We discriminate this over that as we worship the Lord the way he commands us. We discriminate his name above every name by not taking it in vain. We discriminate this over that use of our time on the Lord's day. We discriminate when we honor those in authority over us like our fathers and mothers. Bible says very candidly, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. They were brothers. And what is our first reaction when we read that? When we listen to that, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. If we're honest with ourselves, the first thing that we think is, how could God hate Esau? (coughs) But Spurgeon said it this way, I'm not astonished that God hated Esau. I'm astonished that God loved Jacob. You read the story of Jacob and Esau, and it's Jacob that's the conniver. It's Jacob that tries to make a deal to... to, uh, to sell, to, to, to buy Esau's birthright by a pottage of stew, of soup. What a conniver. And he stole the blessing, remember, when his mother told him to, to dress like and to smell like his brother, who was a hunter in the field. We read about Jacob, he didn't deserve any show of mercy. And yet, Jacob, if I loved, Esau was a sinner, just like all of us. Why would you sell your birthright? He wasn't starving. He wouldn't die if he waited another hour to prepare his own food. 
when I think of salvation, I was, and I still am, such an obnoxious, selfish, peevish, childish, boorish, vicious person. God knows our hearts. God loved us and chose us discriminately. And we say, why me, Lord? Think about your friends your, that you grew up with, your neighbors in your neighborhood, your classmates. And you, and you look back, and some of them have passed on. As far as we know, we don't know if they have. And we, we, we go to reunions, and we don't see any of them being saved. And we look in the mirror and say, why me? I was a filthy, rotten sinner. If we're honest with ourselves, why me, Lord? And we have to say, because he loved me. He loved and chose us unconditionally. Here's where the illustration of marriage veers off. Because many conditions exist in the choice of a spouse. Why do you choose a spouse? Why does anybody choose a spouse? They have the same interests. Their looks. That they're saved. That's a good reason to choose. Who their family is. Sadly, people choose because of the money that they have. Or their intelligence. You see, it's not on the basis of anything that God chose us. It's unconditional. And it's represented by what he said in verse 7. He did not love or choose you because you were more in number than any people. You were the fewest of all people. And so anything that we would think that would be a condition for God to love and choose us is, is, is shot down by that statement. But Look with me in chapter 9. He does give us another example of the fact that his love was unconditional. Chapter 9, beginning with verse 4. Speak not thou in thine heart after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before you, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before you. It's not for your righteousness. Notice again the forefront of the sentence, and they catch it here. Not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart dost thou go in to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth, doth drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness. And notice this, for thou art a stiff-necked people. That's undeserving grace. It's not whether we were more in number, whether we were righteous, however, whatever condition our interests in him, as it were, no condition. God chose us not only discriminately, but unconditionally. The very reverse is true, that God chose us despite our sinfulness, despite 
the fact. And think about it, that when Israel left Egypt, they had to put the blood on the doorposts. They were as wicked as the Egyptians. And if an Egyptian had taken blood and plastered their doorposts, they would have been saved the slaying of the firstborn. There were Egyptians that left Egypt to be with the Israelites that were saved. Some of them just got on the bandwagon because Egypt was decimated and they obviously saw that Israel's God was real. They didn't leave Egypt because of their belief. They left Egypt because of circumstances. But there were some that left Egypt without having a firstborn die in their, in their home. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but there were some Egyptians that probably got, and I'm just surmising here, that probably got wind of the fact this is how Israel is going to be protected from the angel of death. If an Egyptian had taken the blood of the lamb and applied it to their doorposts, their firstborn would have continued to live. But the Israelites had to have the blood. God didn't say, well, you're righteous. You don't need the blood. They were as wicked as the Egyptians. They had idols in their hearts. Look, they built the, they, they had Aaron construct the, the uh, golden calf. And all of them died in the wilderness that were, under, that were over 20 years old. You see, it's unconditional love. Remember Ephesians 2, those famous verses? For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. There's that not again. Oh, that not. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, Titus, but by mercy he saved us. Not by works of righteousness. He didn't, love, he, didn't, he didn't love us because we were the smallest in number or because we, our lot was worse than others in this world. For there are sinners in the ghettos as well as sinners in the palaces. God didn't love anyone because they were rich and because they were royalty. God loved us because he loved us. And his love was purposeful. He loved and chose us savingly. Verse 8, the Lord brought you out of Egypt, that is, with a mighty hand. That's the key. For his own glory unto himself he redeemed us. He bought us from slavery. He rescued us from the danger of sin. He placed his son in our position. We're, We're saved by the substitutionary life and death of Jesus. We sing the song, his robes for mine. His robes of righteousness, and he's clothed with our robe of unrighteousness. We are saved by his life and saved by his death. That's why he wanted us to become, verse 6, a holy people. Also, he says, a special people. The word there is a special treasure in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7. Thou art... The idea is become a holy people unto the Lord thy God. He's chosen you to be a special people. The word there is translated 
in the idea of a special treasures, use of king's treasures. In other words, we were paupers, we were, we were beggars, we were impoverished sinners, and he made us valuable. We're precious in his sight. God sees his son when he sees us. Above all people that are upon the face of the earth. You see, election is a doctrine that motivates our gratitude and our our obedience. Finally, or let's say, next to last thought, he loved and chose us covenantally, that he would keep the oath. In other words, it was not a random promise. It was not an afterthought. It's not unto a loose relationship or not with little commitment that God loved and chose us. It took all his heart and his commitment, his own son. And he expects us, therefore, to keep the oath that we realize that that our relationship with God is not a loose relationship that takes as little commitment as possible. Not like the common law instead of getting married. People are shacking up because they're afraid. They're, they're based, it's based upon a distrust in their spouse. So much common law, just in case it goes wrong. In other words, it's built on suspicion and not on trust. God committed himself. His life was on the line by saving us. Sacrifice was involved to save our souls. It was the pledge of his word. You know, it's okay for us to pledge allegiance to the cross. We are to the, to the flag because we are patriots. But that's not our ultimate patriotage. We pledge allegiance to Christ because America is no longer going to be when, in eternity. I have no problem pledging allegiance to the flag. I'm an American. I'm a patriot. But America is not my ultimate allegiance. Our ultimate allegiance is to Christ, is to God. And every time we come to the Lord's table, we're pledging allegiance afresh. Whenever I lead in prayer at Boston Town Hall every several months, the Pledge of Allegiance takes place and I'm happy to stand and hold my hand in my heart and pledge allegiance to the flag. But I'll tell you, my heart is especially grateful right after that. I'm able to go to the microphone and pledge and ask for God's blessing upon Boston and upon the people and pledge my allegiance to the Lord by prayer, honoring him. He loved us covenantally. And you say, well, that was Israel. No, the Bible teaches the salvation of us today is a result of the oath of God's confirmation. Let me read Hebrews 6. It's an oath for confirmation to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, 
We have an anchor that keeps the soul, right? Steadfast and pure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock that cannot move. Founded, grounded firm upon and deep upon the Savior's love. In other words, it's the blood of the new covenant, covenantal love for God. We are in covenant with the Lord. We aren't in a loose relationship. And I hope that we're not giving token gestures of commitment to him and his church. This love and choice is demonstrated in a way that's clearly apparent and capable of being logically proved. He says, with a mighty hand, the small was snatched from the large. It was with God's mighty hand that he saves us. Israel was idolatrous. and God saved them and delivered them mightily from Egypt. They walked out of Egypt two million strong, rich, enriched by the Egyptians, by the Lord. And they went right through that path in the Red Sea while the Egyptians were drowned, all their chariots and horses. Mighty hand. And Jesus was the victim who was glad to die in our place to save us from the lowest and the deepest and the longest hell. Oh, that says he saved from the blackness of darkness forever to now be reconciled to God. We have enemies, but there's no enemy like God. God was my enemy until Jesus took his wrath in my place and God adopted me into his family. He bound and smote Pharaoh. The new exodus is that the Lord bound and smote Satan. It's interesting when we read in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus was discussing his death with Moses and Elijah. What a comfort that is, that they're still alive. God is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. Moses, who was long dead, and Elijah, even, even well, beyond Moses, but they both represented those who are alive when Christ comes, Elijah, and those that are dead when Christ comes, Moses. Both groups are represented. It says they discussed his death, his decease, we're told. Them. You know what the word is? His exodus. The new exodus. In other words, Jesus is saying, I, like, I will be the greater Moses. And as I came forth from the grave, I came forth from death. I brought you forth from the death of slavery and, and oppression in Egypt. And I came forth. And I am the first fruits. And all of you will come with me. There will be a new exodus. That's what salvation is, the new exodus. We are loved and chosen, great demonstration. Transferred from the power of Satan to God, from the power of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear Son. We are loved and chosen. Why am I saved and incorporated into the church of Jesus Christ? Because the life that I now live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Sometimes love is, is alone in a passage. Sometimes chosen is alone in a passage. But they're both true. He loved and chose us. And because he loved and he chose us and saved us, like he says of Abraham, for I know him, Genesis 18, 19, what it means is for I chose him so that he may command his children and his household after him. My sheep hear my voice and or because I know them and they follow me. I have chosen you out of the world. That's why he says the world hates you because you are my chosen people. Isn't that amazing? The hatred of the devil. The devil knows that God chose us and he chose certain two-thirds of the angels not to fall and the devil hates the demon. He hates the angels and he hates the elect of God. And for you and me, election is incentive for gratitude. No frozen chosen, but to be grateful because we undeservingly were saved. It's a motivation or an incentive for obedience. He set us apart for himself to be a holy and a special people. I want to show him my thankfulness by obedience, by being zealous for him. I know it's a trite illustration, but I remember when they had a new baseball league when we were teenagers, and you could leave the, 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 the Babe Ruth for the, the, the alternate league if you wanted to, but you were in a pool with all the rest of the players that left the league. And there were five or six new teams, and there was a day where they set aside where you're basically sitting in the stands, and five or six coaches are there one at a time they, as it were drafted. One plucked one or... And you know, when that one team said, Phil Owen, I remember saying, I want to show them my gratitude for choosing me to be on this new team. And all season long, my heart was, I want to show them my gratitude because they chose me to be on their team and I don't want to let them down. God chose us to be part of his people Isn't that motivation for us to obey him and to show the world that we were undeserving? Incentive for gratitude, for obedience, and may I say incentive for evangelism, being gospel witnesses, not being the slothfully selected. But I remember Ananias, the good Ananias in chapter 9 of Acts. Paul is most likely on his horse with a bunch of other uh, drafted policemen to arrest Christians in Damascus. And on his way there, the Lord appears to him from heaven. and It says he fell to the ground, so we, we assume that he, he fell off his horse. You don't usually, our term, fall, fall, off, fall to the ground if you're, if you're just standing there. I guess you dropped to the ground. But in any case, he's on the ground, he's blinded. He was going there to arrest Christians, separate marriages and separate families, bring them to Jerusalem to put them on trial and put people to death. Where fathers were taken from their homes, husbands from their wives, wives from their husbands, and perhaps children from their parents, as many are today. And in Damascus was a 
shaking Christian named Ananias. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Ananias, I want you to go talk to Saul of Tarsus. Lord. How we try to educate the Lord, don't we? Don't you know? Don't you know that this man, Saul of Tarsus, is on his way here to arrest us? We're hiding. We're trying to blend in. You know what he's done to the saints that are in Jerusalem? There have been many that have been put to death, and you want me to talk to him? And what settled this man? He could have just said, just do it. How often he just says to us, just do it. He gave him a reason. You know what the reason was? Election. He's a chosen vessel unto me. Literally a vessel of election. Ananias, just like I chose you to be saved, I have chosen Saul. Can I not save the chiefest of sinners if I want to? But Ananias would have been able to say, but Lord, I was a chief sinner too. And so election was a motivation to evangelism. And like Spurgeon said, we don't know who are going to step forward and believe. So we try to witness to as many as possible. There's no mark on a person's forehead that says, I'm going to believe. I'm a chosen one. We're all sinners by grace, and everyone needs to hear of the fame of Jesus and the fact that we can be saved from our sins. You know, as I close, in Galatians 6, verse 16, the church is called the Israel of God. Chapter 6, and verse 16. It shows that it, it, it unites the truth of Israel's election and the church's election, that it's the same. It's because of God's love. It's because of God's discriminating love, his unconditional love, his love and his election that saves us. It's a covenantal love. And it's a love that in choice and election that is demonstrated by his powerful hand in the way that he saved us from our sins. We become a holy people under the Lord, separated from the world, a special treasure, valuable because we're bought by blood and redeemed from the slavery of sin. God loved us and chose us. It's true. It's the gospel. It is a reason for us to be grateful, obedient, and useful. We read, Beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. May it be. Here we are, Lord. May we yield ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close by singing Shane's hymn, Chosen Not for Good in Me. Tremendous gospel hymn, 342. 342.